Yeah. So I just kind of wanted to go over the general outline of unionizing your workplace and my experience unionizing my workplace recently. Um, I teach art at a local children's museum and probably in about March, we started talking about it. And there's one of the biggest realizations for me throughout this whole process was there's a lot, a lot of work that goes into it, but it's actually a pretty simple process. It's just a lot of legwork to get all the pieces in place and all the mechanics kind of moving. So the first step to it is really just finding interest and finding people in your workplace that might be interested in helping you. So the biggest part of this is just talking to people like, you know, your workplace best. So me and my friends, we didn't know. It's a pretty progressive place. Like we work in childcare, we work in art. So it's a pretty progressive workplace already, but just talking about unions in the workplace can be intimidating, I think, for a lot of people, especially if you don't necessarily know a lot about it. A lot of us didn't really know too much. I was probably one of the more gung-ho people about it, but I used my knowledge to share that with them. And then we were able to share that with everybody else from there. So I just found some people who were also interested, might not have known a whole lot, or were willing to learn more and willing to talk about it. And we made sure to meet and talk about it off company property. It's a really, really big thing is you don't want to meet and discuss this kind of thing on company property because the sooner your boss catches wind of it, the sooner they can start countering it. And you kind of want as much lead up time as you can to get your angle in there. So yeah, after... After we found some interest, we found like a core group of about five of us who were super, super down. And from there, we started reaching out to and just researching local unions. Another thing I didn't realize going into this was that you you don't have to join a union for your job necessarily. So we're art teachers, uh, play workers, stuff like that front desk admin people. And we actually joined the electrical workers union. There's a lot of other museum workers on the East coast who are part of the automobiles workers union. So you can really join any union. And there are also avenues like the IWW. If you want to go down that route and take a more independent and self-sufficient route with it, that really puts a lot more of the legwork in your hands. The nice thing about having an established union is there's just more backing there. So like we've had a lawyer at our sessions that we haven't had to pay for because the union is interested in getting our contract through, you know? And so the union kind of covers all of that for us, which is really nice. And so, like I said, we shopped a couple of them and I think this is really important. I don't think we shopped as many as we probably could have, but we looked through maybe like three or four of them and we found a connection through one of our members' mothers who's been trying to unionize her workplace for a while. Um, with the electrical workers. And she had a friend named Annabelle who worked for them as a rep. So we sat down with Annabelle and we really liked them just because they're one of the bigger unions in San Diego. And on top of that, their leadership has recently gone through kind of a shift and they have a lot more younger leadership now and a lot more progressive leadership than a lot of the other unions we saw. And specifically this rep, Annabelle, played a big part in other big labor issues. I don't want to get into it too much in San Diego. And so that signaled to us that they like walk the talk, you know, Mm. Um, and they were somebody who would really stand by us and represent our interests and not take it out of our hands. 
And that was something that was really, really important for us because most of our members didn't have a strong backing about what a union was and what the process was. We wanted to find a union that gave us support, but also on the other hand, didn't take all the work and do it behind closed doors where we couldn't really see it and know what was going on. We wanted us, the workers, to be you know, in charge of our union. So after we found an organization that worked for us, um, the next step was just a petition for an election. And this is one of those things where it sounds like it could be really hard and complex, but it was actually really easy. All you have to do is get 30% of your workplace on board and sign a little card that you can get from the NLRB called an authorization card. Um, you get 30% of the workplace to sign them and you have an election. At the election, you need to get 50% plus one of the employees to vote yes, and you have a union. And I was really, really surprised how simple that process was. And the vast majority of this stage, this probably took the longest in all of kind of the planning of the union, just because the vast majority of the work was us actually organizing the workers and talking with them and getting our information to them and telling them why we think the union is important, what the union can do for us, and really making that clear. And so we had a ton of meetings through this period. It's probably like a three or so month period where we just had meetings at coffee shops, at people's houses, where we just kind of discussed the issues in the workplace. And the first couple of them were, were really kind of just venting sessions. We let people come and just vent their frustrations with our bosses, the workplace, the operations. And then we were able to look at them and be like, we can answer that in a collective bargaining agreement. We can address that in a collective bargaining agreement. We can fix that. We can hold them accountable here, here, and here in these ways through a collective bargaining agreement. You just mentioned the NLRB before you go on. What exactly is that? So the NLRB is the National Labor Relation Board. They were founded by what's called the National Labor Relation Act, which is the act that gives workers in America the right to unionize. So every single worker in America has the right to form a union. You have the right to discuss forming a union. You have the right to actually vote and make a union. People cannot stop you from voting to form a union in this country. And this is one of those things that's kind of thrown by the wayside because union participation is so low in this country. People don't even realize that it's legally protected. Like nobody can stop you from doing this process. I mean, I've never even heard of it. That's why I had to Yeah, that's the first time hearing about that. Yeah, so... But the National Labor Relations Act, kind of like the, um, the ACA, is what guarantees that right for Americans. So it, it's a pretty substantial thing in American work, but it's so rarely talked about. I didn't know about it either before I started this. Honestly, I knew what unions did and what they were for, but I wasn't sure of the process going into it. But we had all these meetings, discussed the issues in the workplace. And from there, we started making laundry lists of the issues and thinning it down into what the unit as a whole thought were the most important things. And that gave us a direction on how to approach members that we weren't so sure about. You really want to be strategic here before you actually send in your authorization cards. You don't want to tell people who might go tell management, you know, 
but at the same time, they're still your coworkers and they still need to be involved in the process that their right as a worker in the workplace to be a part of this. So we wanted to approach the people that we thought would be the most receptive first, bring it to them, see if we could get support. And then as a whole, start talking to more people who might kind of be on board, but not know what's going on, branch out more to people who just don't know anything and like, oh, I've never heard of it. Okay, maybe. And then eventually out to the people who we think might be hard nose and start trying to bring people in. And our thinking was if we could gather a strong base, those outliers would be more willing to participate. And they'd see that there was a lot of interest in this in the workplace. And they'd be like, yeah, okay, if everybody else is down, I'm down too. Oh, another really big part of this that I wasn't aware of, and it's like a safety thing too. And it seems a little counterproductive, at least when you're unfamiliar with the process. But something our rep was telling us was whenever you're planning meetings like this, you always want to write down exactly who's there, time, date, um, just do like a full sign-in sheet, try to get emails from people, because that actually gives you more protection. When she first told me that, I was like, oh, that seems sketch. What if management gets this list? Mm-hmm. And then they have a laundry list of everybody who's unionized. <laughs> um, but it actually leaves a paper trail for you so that you can reference if management does start cracking down on people. Because it's a guaranteed right, if you can show evidence to the National Labor Relations Board in court that these people have been involved in unionizing, organizing activities, and you think that they've been unjustly fired, it actually gives you a really, really solid leg to stand on and a really good protection. And that's something that everybody has just by having the National Labor Relations Act in place. So after we got our message out to people, we started really, really trying to focus on how management would react once they found out. We kind of primed people with why we needed it. But now we kind of needed to shield our members from the counter operation that management would do. And so management will do what are called captive audience meetings. And they'll basically sit you down on paid company time so you can't leave. And they'll give you an hour-long, two-hour-long spiel on why unions are no good, why it'll be bad for the museum, why it'll make the workplace go under. They'll try to bargain with you. We'll do better, all this sort of stuff. And so we started really trying to address those points. And our union has a really, really good resource called the Dirty Dozen. And this is kind of like a little zine almost that is just the 12 common talking points that workplaces use to delegitimize unions. So this is the dirty dozen. So management asks for a second chance. They'll just kind of tell you, we'll do better. You know, the truth is they're empty promises just to get you to vote no. And then they'll just keep doing the same thing. If they've been doing it the same way for this long and there's nothing to hold them responsible to changing it, why will they? What incentive do they have? Don't sign the authorization card. Sometimes they'll say that signing an authorization card is the same thing as signing your union card and that immediately you have to start paying union dues. And that's not true. An authorization card is just a voice interest in having a union election. It's not a yes or a no vote. It's just voicing your interest in having the election. This is actually untrue. It's illegal for them to close down because they threatened to unionize. So it won't be because of the union. It'll be because of something the management is doing. 
management talks about union bosses. They'll tell you that union bosses are corrupt. They get paid six figures. They have this lavish lifestyle. They don't represent what they talk about. And it's really not true. A lot, a lot of the labor leaders I've met so far are people that came from trades and they got involved in their union. And then they started working for their union. So it's not true that these are like bureaucrats somewhere who only interest is to take your union dues. They're workers too, who want to help other workers. Management says they'll never sign a contract. They have to bargain in good faith. That's part of the National Labor Relations Act. So they can't not bargain. Um, this is actually pretty fun. So this is in the middle of the book and it's just a little bingo sheet with all of them on there. So when you're in those captive audience meetings, you can sit there and hold it up. And we had these for our members and literally everybody was sitting there like bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Oh, wow. I got bingo. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it, it's a really, really good tool. And you can make your own things like this too. We made a couple little flyers and a couple like two page zines that we passed out to our friends at work because we're like artists. Everybody there draws or does digital art in some way. So it's pretty easy for us to make a couple things to hand out to our coworkers. And that's one of those things that comes with organizing. Like I said at the beginning, you know your workplace best. We knew that for our coworkers, we're really tight knit. We know we all do art. So we knew that it would make a really big connection if we were putting time into making these resources, handing them out to our friends. And they'd be like, oh, wow, they really care about this. So I'll pay more attention. It's not to say that we didn't also hand these out to everybody eventually, but there are lots of different ways that you can approach this to make it tailored to your needs. I'll do a couple more of these. The union's a third party. They'll say that you can't talk to your manager anymore. You won't be able to discuss anything with HR. Everything will have to go through the unions. And this isn't true. You're always allowed to talk to your supervisor. You, you'll always vote on who is going to be negotiating for you. So there is no bureaucracy here. There's nothing stopping you. Nothing is really changing. The way I like to kind of think of this is nothing's really changing we're just solidifying the floor of what we have now and giving us a place to build up from. And that's kind of my whole view on this whole process is workers need these protections in place. So, you know, we can actually grow in our workplace. If you don't have any protections, then there's nothing preventing you from, you know, losing out on what you're worth. Uh, management talks about negotiating from a blank slate. Like I said, this isn't true. You don't start from zero. You start, from the status quo, and then things can fluctuate. But for the most part, if your coworkers are the ones negotiating your contract, they're not going to negotiate you a worse deal than what you started out with, right? A big part in ours was we wanted stability in our benefits. We wanted security in our jobs. And a lot of that just comes from getting that floor solidified and knowing, okay, now they can never walk back on this floor. And honestly, that's one of the best feelings for me right now, especially with COVID going on, just knowing that there is kind of this backing to it where I know I have my job secure. I know, you know, when this is over, I have my job still. It's really nice. Management promises. 
yeah, wage increases, open door policy. You can always come talk to us. We'll do pizza parties, all that sort of stuff. And (laughs) the issue with this kind of thing is it's either just like a, a symbol to buy you off with actual money or with like pizza or an ice cream party or something, or they're just empty promises, you know? Like I said earlier, what's stopping them? If there's nothing holding them responsible, what is stopping them from walking back on these promises? And that's really what the what unions are about, is holding your employer accountable to promises that they make to you. I'll tell you that the union will promise to get you whatever you want, claim that the union cannot guarantee you any better benefits, wages, or working conditions. And this is one of those things where your employer is always going to tell you what they think is the truth, right? They're always going to be speaking from their perspective. And from their perspective, there isn't enough money for you. There isn't enough money to give you a raise. There isn't enough money to increase sick time. There isn't enough money for this. And they they legitimately, they legitimately think that. But the issue is they're looking at it from a point of view of, I need to make sure that this institution is as financially stable as possible. And you can do that while also paying your workers a living wage, you know? And I think a big, big issue with this is the goals of what you're fighting for in your union is set by you. So like, how do I put this? It's what you and your coworkers want, right? So we set this whole long laundry list out for me and my coworkers. We all together wrote out almost everything that we had an issue with. And then we were able to trim that down into what do we think is the most important? And it's not necessarily, you know, going into it that you you can't get the sky, but you want to shoot for the stars, you know, you want, you want to push for what you can get. And you know, you're going to meet somewhere in the middle. So you're going to push a little harder because you know, you're going to meet in the middle. Yeah. So like, just for example, maybe salary or wages, that doesn't always have to be the number one or even one of the priorities in, in your workplace. If you're for some reason satisfied with what you're making, but you've got safety concerns, you still might want to consider forming a union. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, 100%. Because it, it really is unique to your workplace. Everything that you guys fight for is up to you. And it's what your needs are. If you, Like you said, if you don't really need the pay increase, but you need safety regulations there to make sure you and your coworkers feel safe coming into work, still a reason to unionize. We'll tell you that they'll force you to strike even if you don't want to. The unions will never force you to strike. It's all democratically decided. So unless you guys vote to strike, you're not going to be asked to strike. It's something that the unit as a whole votes on. Management talks about dues, fines, fees, and assessments. With this, I never really knew how much union dues were. And I assumed starting out that they wouldn't be very high. And I was actually kind of surprised how low they were. For us, at least, it's going to be 1% of straight time worked. And that's it. So for me, it comes out to like roughly like $20 a check, which isn't a lot. And that's really the only fee there is. It's really not super applicable. It was kind of like an empty argument, it felt like. 
Right? If you compare it to the what twenty nine percent, it said on just a couple other slides back, you could get from yeah. unionizing one percent. Yeah, as a small price to play. Company forms a union free committee. They they definitely didn't do this for us. They definitely brought in one of our board members who was like the youngest guy on the, the board to come talk to us. And he tried doing this like whole presentation about why millennials don't need unions. And it was, <laughs> it was a little bit in like <laughs> insulting. <laughs> it was Condescending. <laughs> Even in that they basically only have so many talking points. And if you're able to get information to your coworkers before your management is, you have a lot better chance of your coworkers being able to see through their bullshit. Well, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, some obstacles no one could have expected the unionization process to be without its challengers. But now we have an idea of those real challenges. So out of those dozen, how many would you say that you personally encountered during your, your process? I, I would say almost all of them, honestly. I think the only one I didn't see was the anti-union committee. But besides that, all the talking points, one of the most poignant things they tried to do was they tried breaking us up into individuals, talking to us one-on-one. -on -one. Then they tried doing department-wide meetings that were a little more intimate. Those two were kind of the most intimidating ones where it wasn't necessarily that they come up and tell you like don't unionize it was just like we just want you to have this information and understand like your rights and everything and when most of the bargaining unit doesn't know really what a union is they're standing there like uh am i in trouble uh why are you <laughs> and like when they sit everybody down and try to have a very intimate talk when it, was, when it was in like a more intimate discussion space, it almost felt more pointed. In the bigger meeting, it was very impersonal. And we were kind of able to sit there as a group and just brush it off. But when they sat us down in single groups and had like your manager tell you, walk you through these talking points, basically, it felt very, very pointed. And I think that was the worst thing because in our workplace, we have a really good working relationship with our managers and our upper management too. You know, obviously there's some like friction in any workplace between workers and management, but we have a really good working relationship and it just felt so aggressive to have them sit everybody down like that and walk through talking points that were so obviously untrue once you start thinking about them. And I think that was definitely what got us the most was it kind of, it kind of hurt, you know, even our workplace where we have good managers, they're still partaking in this bad faith argument just to prevent us from unionizing. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, but roughly how big of a workforce is that you're talking about when you say unionizing your workforce? So our unit was about 50 members when we started, I think, now a few people have left pre-COVID and then one person left right after COVID to move back in with their parents. And I think we're down to about 38 now. So we're a relatively small unit, but I think that actually makes it a little bit easier for us to organize. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Just because when we are so small, it's really easy to form this like tight knitted group. And I think anybody's yeah. kind of seen it when you have like a good working environment, you and your coworkers definitely become friendly 
and it's yeah. easy to talk with each other during work, stuff like that. And I think that really helps. But at the same time, we have fear of if that unit gets too small, you know, what happens? Yeah. Um, and I, I think the biggest thing preventing anything super union ending from happening is the core group of us that are negotiating the contract now will obviously be here throughout. So no matter what, we'll make sure that the union contract gets put in place. So Mm -hmm. anybody who has left will have rights to come back. Anybody new who comes in will be under a union contract. Um, And I think that's kind of the most important thing for us. Yeah. So after we sent in our authorization cards, we had the vote and there was about a month period between us sending the cards and the actual vote. So in that time, that month period was when we were getting all that anti-union push from our management team. So it was a very narrow space of time that we were getting just bombarded with this information from them. But in the end, we ended up getting 75% of the vote yes, and we won. And from there, we went immediately, we completely shifted gears and started pre-planning our contract. So the first thing we did, obviously, after we won the union vote and we had a a union now was we voted for our bargaining committee. So the people that were actually going to represent the workers at the table with management. So we had all the departments vote internally and give us one candidate each. And there were a few departments that were smaller, like our maintenance team was only three people and none of them wanted to step up. So one of our other departments is representing them. So we voted on a team of about five of us and I'm one of those people. So we've been the most active people in this. But the way I've been describing it is picking up a sword and a shield at that point. You have the the sword to kind of fight back and hold your management team responsible. But then you also have the shield to kind of block your coworkers from having to see all the toxic behavior. And it's this two-fronted play the whole time where information's coming through us and we're feeding it back to them and we're constantly giving them, we want to give them as much information as possible, but we don't want it to be just like worrying because when you, when you aren't there and you don't know what's happening, any news can be taken to like a logical extreme, I guess, if you don't have details. So we really have to focus on presenting things to people so they don't see the most toxic aspects of our bosses because we don't want to lose that working environment that we really, really enjoy. But at the same time, we kind of have to reveal a little bit of that to them to show them like, look, this is how bosses in general view workers. This is why we need the union to protect our workforce from the interests of the people who run our workplace because we obviously have different interests. So yeah, we voted on our bargaining committee and we just immediately started going through that laundry list that everybody had come out with. And we went through the thinned out version of it to start planning out a contract and just writing a draft. And we spent maybe two months writing a draft just once or twice a week meeting for four or five hours after work, just sitting down the five of us And just trying to go through as much of those things as we could and trying to put it into legalese, trying to just get the best language we could that we thought covered as many of our bases. And we did this alongside our union rep, which is another reason it was nice to have the rep there. So we had somebody 
who at least had some context of what a contract looks like. She was able to get us some other contracts to work off of. We found some other museum union contracts that already are out there to help guide us. And we had to use a lot of kind of waypoints along the way because it was my first time ever writing a contract, honestly. Like I never even thought I'd ever do that in my life. And so sitting there and being like, okay, well, how do we word this? Should it be may or should it be shall? Shall it be will or will it be, you know, shall? Like there's all sorts of just tiny little details in it that you probably wouldn't pick up on if you didn't have somebody say, hey, what's the implication of that though? And so we went through that, spent about two months just going through, writing it out, editing it, writing it out, editing it. We'd bring a draft of some language back to the bargaining unit, show them where our head's at, get some feedback, go back to the table, draft a little more, until eventually we had something that we felt comfortable bringing to our management team. And past that, then we sat down for negotiations, and we've been in negotiations for about nine months now. So it's not something that happens overnight, for sure. Something that we were told while we were writing this, first contracts tend to take the longest because successor agreements, you're really only negotiating over a handful of things that need to change. But with that first contract, you're arguing over every minute detail of all the language. And yeah, it's been fun. Honestly, negotiations, I feel like, like I said, this sounds like a lot, a lot of work, but it's the type of thing that I feel like anybody can really do. Regardless of the language writing the contract, it was very easy for us to sit down and be like, well, if we, we have an issue where people feel uncomfortable working in our garage doing parking for long periods of time and they're like, well, I want to be able to leave if I feel uncomfortable down there because of the fumes and stuff. So it's pretty easy for us to just go when we got to parking, like, okay, well, people should have the right to 10 minute break if they feel unsafe, if they feel they need the need to take a second break, maybe they could rotate out for the day, or maybe we could have them close it down and like put in something about ventilating the area. You know, it was easy for us to come up with ideas and fixes and argue amongst ourselves and talk those ideas out to see what we thought was the best of those ideas. And then just write that down. I think the contract language is what scares a lot of people out of doing this. We had a lot of people, once it got to, okay, who wants to help sit down and write the contract with us and bargain it? A lot of people were like, ooh, that sounds like a lot. And every time we showed them what we were working on, they'd be like, wow, I don't know how you guys are doing it. But the vast majority of the time, we just wrote our feelings and what we thought a good solution was in plain language. And then we would look at one of the other past contracts that we found and be like, okay, how can we kind of merge these two together and make it sound like it's legal language, you know? So it was, it was a really easy process just because we kind of already had all the answers. And then with negotiations, it's probably the most cathartic thing I've ever done in my life. To be a hundred percent honest, sitting there and getting to explain to your CFO and your CEO who don't have experience working on the floor, on the front lines of your workplace. And when they say things like, well, I know for a fact it doesn't work that way. And you can look at them dead in the eyes and be like, I know for a fact that you do not. Like, let, me, <laughs> let me tell you how it actually goes. And for them to sit there and go, 
oh, I um, didn't realize that was happening. And just to start bridging that gap is re- it's very freeing. But at the same time, you also have the pressure of doing that to your CFO and CEO who are used to not being questioned makes for a pretty tense environment at times. And I can't think can, of a single worker that hasn't daydreamed about something, some kind of scenario like that. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, it how really many times, feels like a daydream sometimes. Uh, yeah. Like how many times working retail or kitchen work, just wanted to tell the manager who comes in once a week, actually, you know what? <laughs> Unions are the answer. That's what you're, that's what you're trying to say. Yeah. And so it's it's been a lot of back and forth with it like with any negotiation we started with our draft we presented it to them and then they came back with a number of our articles and they're like okay this is our we only responded to these couple of them usually you would argue a whole contract out instead of just single sections we've been doing single sections at a time which is a little unorthodox but we were doing that specifically because we we wrote it in sections and subsections and there were certain things that we wanted to address apart from other things. Um, so it's been working for us, but generally speaking, you negotiate the contract as a whole before you start signing ten- what are called tentative agreements. So basically you go through, here's our draft. They give us their thoughts. We respond. And usually in that third one is where we try to meet in the middle. And if we come to an agreement, we sign what's called a tentative agreement. And we usually just, in Google Docs, change the color to green so we see it. And then we move on to the next section. And it's been a fairly slow process. There have been some things that have been relatively easy to get and some things that have been harder to get, mostly because of COVID-19 now. Um, it's been the more economic-sided stuff, so like healthcare, parking. We haven't even touched wages yet. That's going to be our very, very, very last thing. Um, we're waiting to see where COVID goes. So if we can like hold off on that for a little bit, that might put us in a better position, you know, but yeah. And honestly, our contracts are looking really, really great. One of my favorite things that we got in it. And so when COVID-19 hit, they ended up eventually, we went on furlough and eventually they laid us all off. And so that was really hard for a lot of us. But what we ended up working out with them was rehire provisions for everybody. We worked out kind of stages of employment. So being laid off now for us isn't the same thing as being terminated. It's just a separate stage of employment. So we can be currently employed, furloughed, laid off, or eventually terminated. If we're currently working, we're working in a normal capacity. If we're furloughed, it's basically if they need to close for a short period of time, they continue benefits, everything like that. And it's pretty good deal. Like it's really just if they need to close for like a week long because they're renting out the space or something like that, we all get furloughed. And then laying off is basically just the next step. If they don't know when they're going to reopen or if it's some huge financial impact like COVID-19 has been where nobody can come in, they have to stay closed. That's a layoff. But there are recall provisions written into that section. So no matter what, whether we're furloughed, whether we're laid off, we're always brought back in order of seniority in our department. And that's huge. Honestly, we, when they laid us off, they did it unilaterally. They had to, you know, negotiate that and they didn't. So that was one thing that we dealt with with them. 
but I think them not realizing that and doing that illegal thing kind of is how we were able to get a deal where it was like, okay, well, people have a right to come back from this. Like there's no reason of their own that they left. They didn't choose to get laid off. So they should have the right to come back. And we have that. So from here on out, no matter what, if they have to lay people off, all those workers have the right to come back now. And I, I'm really, really happy with that because that was my biggest thing with the union was I wanted job security. I, I've never had a job before where I could only get fired for having like a good reason. I don't know about you guys, but I've always, I've had multiple managers tell me like, oh, well, employees are just replaceable, stuff like that. And it's very unsettling to me. I hate that. If you don't hear it, you definitely feel it working any kind of wage position any retail job and any like retail food industry <laughs> job just because like they have like i guess there's such like a huge turnover rate with those jobs because it's the place where a lot of people just get their their steps into like the working place mm-hmm. yeah entry level employment and uh the at will employment Yeah. And that was honestly one of the first things we got. So we, one of the very, very, very first things we got is what's called just cause protection, which is exactly that security. Now we can only get fired for just cause. We're not at will employees anymore. We're union employees. So they have to have a good reason to fire us. And if they don't, we can grieve that process. So we have in the contract, what's called a grievance process. So if they ever do undertake any sort of unfair labor practice, we can grieve that process. And we have basically a process that they have to go through to determine whether or not they're allowed to do that thing. And, you know, if they don't have good cause to fire us, they can. We have multiple layers of protection now. And I think, I think, I really think unionizing is something that any workplace could use. My workplace in general like I, I work in a museum, so it's like a fairly middle class job for sure. But even us, we're paid minimum wage. They see all the frontline staff is completely replaceable. And this place, this like really liberal institution was just so hard pressed on how they presented that to us, that we were replaceable. And it was kind of the first time that I was like, okay, this is enough. This is enough. <laughs> Stop it. Tired. But any any workplace can benefit from this. It's not just trade work. It's not just administrative work. It's not just retail work. It's not just fast food work. Any job can use these protections. Any worker would benefit from having a union. And I think that's the biggest thing is as Americans, we really need to focus a lot of our energy on rebuilding the the labor movement in this country because there are no like significant organizations in Washington lobbying for workers' rights. And what is there is completely overshadowed by corporate interest. So we, as the workers, there's nobody but ourselves who is going to stand up and advocate for our own interests. And I think that was the biggest realization for me in this process of doing it is if I stop working, this stops happening, right? If me and my friends just wake up tomorrow and we're like, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. I'm done with it. It 
doesn't happen. And that's kind of scary because we have to be very self-sufficient. But it drives me, honestly, knowing that I'm making my workplace significantly better for my friends, for my coworkers when they get back. Every day I wake up and I'm ready to go. Like I said earlier, I, I woke up yesterday for union negotiations, ready to go for like eight hours straight. I was like, okay, let, let's do it. Number f- session 15 on Zoom, let's do it. Like, I, I think it's just super important that everybody kind of realizes that it takes us standing up and saying, no, this isn't okay. We deserve better for change to be made. So just now you said that you, you feel like every industry, every position could benefit from from unionizing. I did have a question in your opinion or from what you've heard from those more experienced union reps. Is there like a workforce that's just too small to either legally or practically be unionized? You work at like a mom and pop shop with less than 20 employees. Is there any benefit or is there even any way to unionize? So that's a really good question. I, I believe that under the Na- National Labor Relations Act, uh, your business can contain only a handful of employees and they can still unionize. It just states that an appropriate bargaining unit is necessary to form a union. And that can be made up of two or more eligible employees who share a community of interest. So two or more. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you work for some guy part-time and you have a buddy that you bring along, you guys could unionize a small business. All right. Instead of, I got the whole squad with me. I got the whole group. <laughs> Rolling up to the job site. Rolling up to the job site. My forklift with the whole union. Gang, gang. No, union, union. <laughs> All right. Uh, Honestly, though, I I really think, though, that any job you get, I don't know why people don't just try to unionize it. It's so easy. That that's honestly my move from now on. Any job I go to, I'm just gonna start talking to people and be like, "Hey, yo, I I I started a union once. It was pretty sick. It was pretty great. We got this and this and this. I'm just gonna keep doing it everywhere I go. You wanna try some unions? Yo, dude, I got some sick unions in the background. <laughs> but yeah. honestly, though, like you, you got to get them hooked, and then then they'll keep buying. You know. <laughs> I mean, I'm I've been working as a freelancer for the last like almost three year now, years now, especially including this uh, this COVID situation, and before that, you know, overseas where the, obviously the labor protections are different, mm-hmm. especially as an expat and stuff. But yeah, I can't imagine going back to work after hearing what you've told me and just not unionizing. I can't like looking back now on all those jobs I had in college, like two or three years working in the kitchen or in retail, being like, wow, I could have had a union this whole time. I could have I could have been doing this, that and the other with a union. I can only imagine. And I think the best thing is to a number of the people that I know, like friends I know who are like kind of on the fence about unions, kind of lean anti-union, but don't really. I've definitely turned a couple of them just by pointing out um, one of them worked for the school district. I was like, well, they're unions. Like, well, I don't know what they do. And I was like, okay, next time your rep comes in, just just go talk to them. Just sit down with him, go talk to him and see, ask him, I want you to ask him specifically, what is it that the union has won in the last 10 years? 
And he came back to me and he was just like, I didn't realize. <laughs> and he immediately started paying dues. He was one of those right to work people and he was immediately like, I need to pay the money. <laughs> I owe them my life. Yeah. That's very interesting. So uh, I know you said you've been negotiating for already nine months. You said that the first contract is usually the longest. That totally makes sense. But just in an estimate, you said with your workforce of about 50 people, how long did it take from like the day you got the idea? What if we start a union to, you know, the vote and the signing and the paying dues? So we started in March of 2019. That was kind of like when the idea started getting floated around. By about, I think May was when we had the vote, like May 31st-ish. And then about a little after that, a few months after that, we had a few months of union contract writing. And then we started negotiating after that. It's been a a little over a year. It, it's been a little while now. Yeah, it's, it's been a little over a year now. So two and it, a half months from from that idea to the to the formation. Yeah, like I said, it was a lot of us not being sure who we could talk to and trying to play it very, very, very safe because we wanted to make sure that the idea didn't get to management before we wanted it to. And honestly, we we were really successful at that. Um, they didn't find out about it until the NLRB emailed them saying that 60% of your workers want a union vote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can almost so, be a fly in their wall. So what oh, you're saying yeah. is it took two and a, about two and a half months, mm-hmm. uh, but you could have potentially done it even quicker if you were maybe less cautious or more, mm-hmm. let's say, progressive workforce or work environment. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I would have expected that it would be maybe the other way around where forming the union would, would be the major investment of resources and time. No, like I said, it was surprisingly easy. It's not to say that it wasn't a lot of legwork and a lot of like organizing and talking to people, but it was very, very easy. That's crazy. And so then... In talking about like the benefits, obviously you you mentioned some of the ones that everyone kind of knows and expects when we talk about unions, wages, also job security, job safety, Mm -hmm. safety meaning like occupational hazards, and then job security meaning that like you said that rehiring or the the uh, the furlough, the different stages of employment. Um, Were there any other benefits from either forming the union or in doing this contract negotiation that you 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 either found or are expecting to to be conferred that you you never would have considered before getting this experience? Well, I guess one thing specific to our workplace and one thing that kind of just seems reasonable, but was really taboo in our workplace for no reason that we got. So the first one, we got our employees the right to bring their kids to work with them. We're a children's museum, obviously. And so a lot of our workers are single parents. And so it's hard for them to find childcare. And a lot of our managers will just bring their kids and have them hang out or while they're doing work. Yeah. So we basically argued like, hey, if management can do that, we have a lot of like single parents on our staff. They should have the right to do that too. 
And it's with the stipulation, you know, that it doesn't become basically that it doesn't become like a burden on the rest of the staff where someone has to like babysit your kid and they can't pay attention to other kids, but it, it at least helps, you know, that was a big one that we had a few people in particular bring up and they've seen it before and they've like asked and they're like, you can't, you can't do that. And it's like, why do they get to do it all the time? So that was something that was really simple. That was a very easy, easy fix for us that I think is kind of unique for our workplace. Another one was remote work. Our, so we actually unionized with part of our admin staff as well. All of our staff in the administration office isn't managerial roles. So only any non-managerial role, so basically anybody without hiring or firing power can join the bargaining unit. So the vast majority of people in our admin office don't have that power. So we got remote work for them as well. Basically, with the consent of their manager, they can schedule time to work from home throughout the week. And that was a really big one that people had specifically asked for. And very specifically, like our marketing team and our graphic design team, because those that, you know, in a lot of other marketing and graphic design jobs, they would have, and they've worked those jobs where they do have it. And they're like, this is the only job where I've had to come in five days a week. And it's like very distracting to sit here in graphic design while I have a room of 20 people around me. And both of those things, you know, they were just simple fixes to issues people were having in the workplace that were just unthinkable prior for no reason. People have asked about remote work multiple times and they were always just like, no, we cannot do that. We, we have no idea. We don't know if you're, you're doing laundry while you're scheduling people. We don't know what you're doing when you take your lunch. And it's just like, why is this such an issue? And it turned out it, it really wasn't. When they had us on furlough, they had all of the staff work from home for like two weeks. So it was, yeah. we can do it. <laughs> right. And that's actually an excellent segue into the next question I have here. Um, obviously, COVID, the elephant in the room. Um, you said that it's it had an impact on the furlough and stuff like that. I can imagine that it may have helped convince them on the remote work idea as well. But do you think that in, in other general terms, the, the outbreak, the pandemic, the lockdown has had an impact on negotiation? Like maybe they're been less willing or more willing to work on certain aspects uh, or to hear certain points from you guys as the bargaining yeah. team? I, I don't want to get too much in like the weeds of what goes on in negotiations, but it's definitely had an impact for sure. I think the biggest thing is we've basically written up a separate job description that our staff would come back into temporarily they pitched to us that they wanted to unilaterally, basically when everybody came back and they opened their doors still during COVID, they wanted to condense everybody into one job description and continue paying us the same base wage as our lowest paid employees. So we were, and they were like, well, you know, COVID-19, we're going to have to be more flexible with this. And so we're like, okay, well, this is legally a mandatory point of bargaining. So we have to negotiate the effects of this, but we, we understand like the need for flexibility. So we've been negotiating this temporary job description and that's been the largest point of focus right now, probably in the last three, four, five sessions. 
and just trying to get that hammered out so they can bring that to the board. And because once they have that approved by the board, then they can start going to the city, start getting permits and just get those papers going at least. A lot of the city is just backed up right now, they said. So they're like, we want to get stuff in as soon as possible. So once COVID lifts, we can start getting permitting down. Um, so we've been trying to focus on that for them. But this, um, it's called a Memorandum of Understanding or an MOU. And basically, it's just like a little side letter saying, this is how this job description is going to be implemented. This is the guidelines that it's going to be worked under. And so some stuff in that is we have specific COVID protections. So the enforcing of masks, social distancing, plexiglass spacers for like the front desk staff, stuff like that. So it's forced us to negotiate kind of a side contract almost. And it's definitely, I don't want to say it's made them less able to bargain. It's definitely made them less willing to bargain. Mm. They're using it as an excuse, honestly. But the nice thing is, if your employer cries broke, then you have the legal right as a union to go through their finances with a fine tip comb. And so with that, we have all their financials, we have all their numbers, and we're trying to get some projections from them for when they reopen. And we're kind of sitting on all this information right now and going through it to try to formulate a really solid argument as to why can't you pay workers during COVID hazard pay? If you're only working people less, like they want to like ease in slowly to a reopening. Like start two days a week open then see if they can open to three, then go four once they can and really ease into it. And so we're kind of like, okay, well, if you're only having people work two days a week, how big of an impact is that financially? If you pay them five, $10 hazard pay. Yeah. So it hasn't made it necessarily harder to negotiate, which I think is very interesting. It's just kind of put us both back on our heels. And I think it's really going to come down to who takes a stronger, more stable step forward from here. Mm. And I think we're in a really good position to do so. Yeah. I don't have much faith in them just making like a steady step, you know, they're like stepping it, up. the whole time. They're very new to this whole process. They've never, none of them have ever been involved with a union at all. So there's been a couple of like pitfalls for them, obviously along the way. And because we had like one of the bigger, more experienced unions in town, it's put us in a really good position. Mm. Uh, just like going toe to toe with them. So I just have a lot more confidence in us coming back, you know? Yeah. That's very cool. So best of luck, obviously. You did mention something about getting permits or, or something from the city. I'm curious, when you talk about joining a union, especially joining a big union, or maybe the IWW, which is the International Workers of the World, right? Mm-hmm. If you join something like that, how much involvement or interaction can you expect from government at all levels? So obviously, I know you guys are in San Diego. Do you deal with city government, the county government, the state government at all? Or does the union have to do that? Is there any federal interaction required to form a union? um, The only federal interaction needed, I'll just kind of go top down. So the only, only federal interaction needed is the authorization cards to the NLRB. Past that, they send 
neutral parties to observe the election and either side can also elect neutral observers as well. Is um, the NLRB a government organization or is that? It is a, a government organization. So they're, I believe the people on the board are presidential appointees. So like right now, the Trump one isn't the best, but there's really nothing they can do in stopping a union election. The issue comes when issues get brought before them and they rule on it because that sets precedent for other cases in the future. So that's kind of the bigger worry right now in the labor movement is bad rulings coming down. Yeah. But at least when it comes to forming a union, they don't have much interaction besides accepting the cards and sending people within a month to host the election at your workplace. And then from the state level, there's been very, very little state interaction, honestly. Um, The vast majority of the interaction we've had has been at the local and county level. Because we're in a larger union, our business manager does have connections to like city council members, city commissioners, people like that, obviously. So it's we, we've kind of been calling in favors. And the nice thing, too, is the vast majority of them down here are Democrat-leaning. So it's very easy to kind of get them to want to posture as pro-labor. Um, a lot of the local officials actually are members of our museum or they're contributors to the museum. Our CEO has a really good relationship with Scott Peters. I believe he's the city commissioner. And so she loves him. And so we, when we won our union election, we called up him, Chris Ward, Todd Gloria, and we had them all come down and we held a press conference right in front of our workplace with them standing next to us. And we all gave speeches on the doorstep of the museum with them like standing next to us. And our bosses were like across the street videotaping. And so it, it's very easy to get local politicians to kind of want to position themselves next to us. I don't, I don't have enough experience right now necessarily to see how much they're willing to do for us. Person who's definitely been the most willing to help is Chris Ward. And I, me personally, I think it's kind of cause he's running for, he's running for the house soon. So I think he's trying to like, be like, I'm pro labor. I, I help these unions form. And it's like, okay, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I really, you know, so I'm, I'm going to use that yeah. obviously because he, yeah. he donates to our museum and they're going to listen to him. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but uh, that, that's mostly the interaction I've had is on that sort of level okay. in that context. And so, besides the the NLRB, they send you the cards and the, the votes. Is there like the necessity to interact with uh, either state, county, local government agencies for any part of this union unionization process or the bargaining process, or is that all done through the unions and the NLRB? I think it's actually all done through the unions, the workers, and the NLRB. So if you really wanted to, that's why organizations like the IWW does exist. And even that, a lot of organization with the IWW is it takes the union out of it and it puts the union in the hands of the workers. So it's literally like your workplace union. I know, I think it's Voodoo Donuts up north. They organize with them and they are just very, very, very self-sufficient. I, I can't speak from experience. It looks like it would be more like work than before, 
or if not the same amount of legwork as before. Um, you just don't have that backing of like we have like lawyers and political connections and stuff like that to draw. Yeah. And on it, I, I tried pushing the IWW to my coworkers and the vast majority of people were kind of like, we want the support. So you have to leave it up to the workplace and see what everybody's the most comfortable with. Of course. It's all about the workers. Yeah. So related to that, again, obviously we're, we're in California and, um, you know, one of the biggest issues in regards to like labor rights comes to immigrants, migrant workers. It sounds like there's not a lot of government organizations that are involved in unionizing. Is there any like citizenship requirements or would you recommend for even like unorganized, undocumented workers to consider unionizing? Yes. If you are an undocumented worker who doesn't work for the government, the NLRA, so the National Labor Relations Act, does your right to organize a union, electing and collectively bargain with your employers. So, like I said, workers in America can and should be unionized. Like, there's nothing stopping us from organizing. It's a pretty wide-ranging protection from what I've seen. I don't know any group that's really excluded from having a right to unionize in America. And you have to remember, too, this law was put in place back when labor unions were really strong in America. It was a response to the Depression and stuff like that. So this is a very, very strong protection that is kind of like the cornerstone to American labor that's just completely ignored. Yeah. So... Can you think of any circumstance, any kind of workplace, any kind of worker that would not benefit or should not consider unionizing? Final statement. No, I, I really don't think so. I think everything from retail work to sex work should deserves a union, undocumented labor to fully documented labor. Everybody needs a union, blue collar, white collar. Every single workplace can and should form a union, in my opinion. And on top of that, I think those unions, once you form yours, you should look to other workplaces in your industry and start helping them through the process as well, because their workers are only going to benefit from you having unionized. If you unionize your workplace, it then gives them your contract to pull from to write theirs, just like I pulled from others before me to write ours. And that compounds because the number one thing that I've gotten from my employer is show me similar institutions to this. Show me a similar institution that does this. Show me somebody else of our size who does this. And so if you have three, four, five other examples that do that, there's nothing they can say. And there's nothing stopping you from getting what you deserve. Old statement. I like it. Uh, I'm pretty much out of questions. Jorge, is there anything you had to ask? Uh, Honestly, no, not really. This is a lot of, I do have some sort of like a entry level, like understanding of what like unionizing, like what unionizing does for the workplace as well as just like basic history and basic knowledge of unions but i think after this session i really have a clear and more transparent understanding of what exactly goes on in the process of unionizing a workspace and especially in a workspace that 
Cody is in, you know, working at a museum, you know, at least for me, I would think that like, you know, museums are mostly like liberal spaces where they try to touch upon several social events and like historically important events. And I would think like, oh, like a job like that, I've seen the requirements of what it takes to work at a space like that. I think a a peer of mine recently posted a job opening at one of like um, museums in like Balboa Park. And it was just two full pages of requirements of education, experience, social skills, people skills. And I think after this session, now I realize there are a lot of like benefits that come towards unionizing different spaces. And it goes to show that even like the most liberal spaces could benefit from those that decide to unionize. So that's my, that's my takeaway from this. And I'm really glad that we were able to have this session. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. Thanks. Yeah. It it was a lot of fun talking about, honestly, like this is all I've been doing. So it's very nice (laughs) being able to tell somebody about it instead of it all just being stuck up here. Yeah. Something cool that I did forget about that we did win. You have two like labor boards in our work now. So one is the labor management committee and the other is the inclusion, diversity, equity, access committee. Um, We call it the idea committee. So the idea committee is basically just addressing any diversity or inclusion issues that we might see in the museum, how to make it more accessible to the community, to people with disabilities, to low income families. And we're really hoping to work with, we have a community programs department. So we're really hoping to work with them on how we can integrate the two into bringing the museum to more areas of San Diego and our programming to more areas of San Diego that don't really get art programming as much and don't get that funding. And then on top of that, bringing people from low-income communities who are less served to the museum for free a lot more. And on top of that, kind of with what you were saying, Jorge, just like the requirements to get a job at a lot of the museums around here are laundry lists of bullshit. It is... And a lot of times it's kind of contradictory and or it's like repetitive and they're just like hammering something unnecessary home. And the the reality is, is like most people can do the work that we do in these institutions. And historically, museums have, like you said, they've always been rather like liberal or progressive spaces, but they've also been mostly white spaces. Um, And something we're really, really hoping on using the idea committee for is just like thinning out those requirements to help widen the net of people that we can get in here. Mm-hmm. Because most of my coworkers are white. And when we do get people of color into our workplace, it's very rare. And they're usually like, oh, yeah, I'm in the art program at SDSU and I met every single requirement exactly. And it's just like, like I said, a lot of times it's just bullshit. For um, that temporary position, we put language in it basically that thinned out those requirements in hopes that, I, I mean, in general, we're hoping that they don't have to hire externally for the temporary position. 
but anybody who does get hired into that position is part of the bargaining unit. So they're gathering seniority for that rehire provision eventually. And on top of that, basically we have a protection in there. So people that do get hired in off the street, they'll get brought back in in seniority order and they are part of the bargaining unit from then on out. And we lowered the requirements to get in. We thinned out a lot of just the bullshit stuff that was in their laundry list of requirements for the temporary position even. Yeah, we we basically just thinned out like half of the requirements that they put in there that were either just super repetitive or just unnecessary that would have just like made people not want to apply or feel like I can't apply to this. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that, that's not what we want. You know, we want to make people feel like, Oh, I could do this. Like, okay, let, let me try and apply for this. All right. The, I think the position that my peer posted about, I think it was more a higher, higher level like position in like a museum but like I, I read like one like a little bit of it, and it was something like, "Oh, has to have two to three years of curating information, along with uh, similar institutions that are in here, San Diego like museums or something like or something along the lines of that." And I'm yeah. like, that is like already like limiting. Too much. That's too much. <laughs> yeah, uh, not not only is that like a lot. That's such a specific requirement too. To think about it, like. Already with saying that you need to have two to three years of this specific experience, this specific job experience, to say the least. But it also has to be within a certain region that, you know, that could easily like bring down your options to future employers by like 10 people. Mm -hmm. And And that's like me being generous too. Like 10 people is a lot to say that they that those people have that specific job experience. And and that's really it is like, I, I feel like any group of institutions anywhere, like museums in San Diego, they, they all talk, they all know who each other's employees are for sure. And they'll tell each other when they see each other, when they see an application come through, like, Hey, how is so-and-so? And it's just a very like nepotistic environment. And I think that just needs to get broken down like completely broken down because it, it's not helpful. It doesn't allow for good people to get hired for jobs that they're completely capable of doing for no reason other than they don't meet a specific requirement or somebody told you like, oh yeah, this employee was like my my best one. Them kind of tossing their favorites between each other. Because mm-hmm. I, I even mm-hmm. see it in my workplace and like no no hate to like my coworkers or anything, but like, I, I definitely see favorites in my workplace where it's like someone gets hired in cause they know someone, somebody in upper management is friends with their grandmother. So they get hired in and upper management loves them. And then they go to like another museum and then they come back and like, they just bounce around from museum to museum. And it's like, okay, well, what about the cool. 40 yeah. other people that work here who yeah. also, <laughs> Right. You'd think that it's even in an industry like that, where it's even before COVID museums and, and places of learning in general have in culture have not had the strongest showing in like this sort of post-service post-industrial economy we've got. You'd think that they would do anything in their power to remove that sort of exclusivity to like get more people motivated and interested and passionate about, art and working in that industry 
in in some capacity, but 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 obviously not. Hundred percent. I I think it's because I think the thing we have to recognize is like the people running these places. They aren't artists. They aren't. They might be art enthusiasts, but for the vast majority of the time, they're they're business people. They're trying to run these places like businesses. They're not artists and curators and museum professionals that they hire. They're just other employees. And that's kind of the thing, though, is they like to talk the talk, but they don't want to walk the walk, any of these places. And I think it's just kind of the liberal nature of them, of all museums, you know, where it's just that like, like, oh, yeah. It's very performative. It's very, very performative where it's like. (sighs) I think the thing that comes to mind is how you said your workspace was trying to make it so that people from like lower income areas have the ability and have the opportunity to try and see what goes on in this type of institution and to just get a sense of what what is culturally important and what is historically important. And I think where I was going to go with this was that knowledge should not be limited to who it is that has the money or the social status or of anyone that has any sort of label to them. Like knowledge should be open to whoever it is that wants to seek it. Mm-hmm. And that goes to say with, you know, whatever it is that they may be, especially like in museums, that's not only are you getting like a resource that finds topic A to be significant, but you are getting it curated through someone. You're not, you know, you're not just like reading it hands on, like through a yeah, through a book. Like it's different when you're interacting with another person. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, this is. I, I hate to go a little bit off the rails here, but I don't know. I was just like kind of obsessing about this yesterday. It was it was an actual shower thought, but I was I was thinking about in America, chattel slavery. It was basically breeding of of black Americans for physical characteristics, making stronger, heat resilient slave cotton pickers, basically, which is fucked up in one regard in that a lot of the stereotypes, like the negative stereotypes that persist about black people to this day are a direct result of that being treated like fucking stock animals to, to breed and, and, and whatnot. Um, but then what really gets me is that like, even like you said, in the liberals in the North, after the abolition of slavery, they realize like, okay, not only have we made black people this much like stronger and more resilient, but all these lies we told ourselves about them being un- unintelligent or unable to develop the same level of intelligence and culture and skill was proven wrong in less than a decade. Like within like 10 years after the abolition of slavery, you've got, you got like, your W.E.B. Uh, du Bois and all these like super intelligent my parents were a slave and now I'm smarter than 90% of the white folks out here. And I think that that ties right into what you're saying is that even liberals in liberal spaces like this have created these kinds of barriers to entry because white supremacy still lives. Even in like these dark recesses of the mind, they, they like to look around and say, oh, there's no black people in the museum. It must be someone else's fault. But it's like, no, it's, it's your own fault. 
it's been your own fault for putting these exact kinds of restrictions on, on those kinds of positions. And, um, and, and even like you look at the location, the geographical location in somewhere like San Diego, where almost all the museums are right there in Balboa Park. It's like, yeah, it, there's no museums in, in Barrio. There's no, there's like, there's no museums in, in Encanto or any of those other places where, where the minorities might actually benefit from them. And that's all very deliberate too. So why do you have so many restrictions on, on entry still? Mm-hmm. No, 100%. And honestly, that's one of the coolest things about our location. So we're actually located right across the street from the convention center. So we do a lot of programs in the barrio. And it's really nice being able to just like go there in 10 minutes and set everything up and just do programs at like schools over there and stuff. It's, it's really nice. They're pro- like that area is probably one of our most frequented just because it is so close, but yeah. it, it's that type of thing. You know, it's, if it wasn't for the workers being like, Hey, we should do community program stuff. We should do stuff out in the community. We should bring like our programming out into the community. We wouldn't have that program. And then our management isn't, the people who plan that stuff. It's all us. We come up with all the activities. And like one of our biggest things is we try and tailor all of our activities specifically to like the organization we're trying to be in and the community we're trying to bring in. So we talk to the people that we're like organizing the activity with and ask them what their needs are and what sort of focus they would like. And then we give them like a really unique project. Someone um, requested we do a project one time where it's basically we wanted to see how everybody has an impact on the world around us and so we're like okay how can we do that so we bought like a giant four-point canopy and we got painting tarps basically cut holes out in it to make windows and we had kids make cellophane prints basically so they all had these different colored prints of their drawings on like cellophane sheets and then they pinned them up on the wall And then when you went inside, it was just like this rainbow kaleidoscope inside it. And we brought that around to like a bunch of different schools. So every school we went to, the play structure got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you could see every person's individual contribution to it and how it all shines a light on the people inside the world, you know? That that was so powerful to like see kids like get that, see like (laughs) eight-year-olds understand that concept and just being like, holy shit, someone else before me made this and now I get to play in what they made. Yeah, that's, I can only imagine. That's sick. I didn't realize it was so close to Barrio. It's good to hear this, you're doing that. But again, no surprise that management did not take the initiative on that front. Yeah. One one last question. Do you have any plans? Are you guys aware of any plans when to reopen? Yeah, right now we, we don't have a, a time frame right now. It's kind of with all the rollbacks and everything, it's kind of just thrown a, a wrench and everything. Um, so they're they're waiting, honestly. But we're hoping maybe by September, um, hopefully, if not October, who knows? It'll be whenever whenever the pandemic's starting to clear up and we can start getting people back inside the museum. Right now, we legally can't even have people in the museum. Our space, just the way it's set up, we're considered a mass gathering. So we are the last people to get reopened. Ouch. Do you want to um, tell people where they'll be able to find you and how they can support you at the museum when it does eventually happen? Yeah, 
so come on down to the New Children's Museum, San Diego, right across the street from the convention center. And it's right in downtown San Diego. You can't miss it. If you'd like to find out more information, feel free to check out thinkplaycreate.org. Next week, we should be able to meet up with my friend Amelie. Yeah, from Lafayette. She works uh, She works for an NGO. And she's going to tell us about how to communicate and, and do more direct action with local and city government bodies or officials. I don't know. She's going to teach us. Sweet. Um, cool. Uh, Sounds good to me, man. Great talk. Uh, how about this? One last statement from everyone about unions. What did we learn today? I say everyone, especially people of color, immigrants, if you feel like that you could benefit or you're not treated on equal footing for any reason, uh, sex, gender, race, religion, unions will help you out. What about you, Jorge? Um, what I learned from today is that pretty much there is no um no actual like limitation within like a workspace that could prevent anyone from unionizing it could be from any job that you can possibly think of there's some sort of benefit from unionizing and it's all in the workers because the workers are the ones that you know get the engine going and they're the ones that get the job done at the end of the day Excellent. That's my your recap. <laughs> my recap is definitely unions are super duper easy to set up. It just takes a little bit of work, hard work and you'll get it done. And every single person in every single workplace can benefit from it. Um, there's no reason not to un- try and unionize every single workplace that you're in from now on. <laughs> <laughs> That's the takeaway. Unionize every job. All right. Every uh, single one of them. <laughs> all the jobs. All right. Well, that was awesome. Unionize your job, then unionize other people's job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. We, we should spread unions faster than the fucking coronavirus. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> unions are the new pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> that's the takeaway. Unions are the next pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, right. boy can dream, right? <laughs> yeah, that'd be sweet. Um, well, right. I know you got to go. So thanks again, Cody. Um, see you guys next week, if not sooner. Yep, yeah, see you guys next week. Have a good one. Time. All right.